night. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. How's it going, Will? Uh, I'm tired, Matt. I'm a little bit frustrated. I got an itchy butthole. I'm ready to do a show. Let's do a fucking show. Let's go and get right in there. The shadow war between the League of Shadows, the Secret Society, and the Bat Family is raging in the monthly Batman titles. So we thought this week we'd look at three stories about the lives and deaths of the demon's head, Rachel Ghoul. So pretty simple. This week it's three Rachel Ghoul stories. Before we get into these stories, though, Raish is an interesting but somewhat problematic character, although not as problematic as I was expecting going back to these stories from the 70s, because Raish is basically a Yellow Peril villain, only set in the Middle East instead of Asia, as those characters were when they came about in the 30s, your Fu Manchus and Yellow Claws and such. I went in really worried about how Middle Eastern terrorist Raish was going to come off in general in these stories, and it's really not as heavy as I was expecting it to be. No, and I think part of that is because, and you will correct me if I'm wrong here, but Diddy O'Neill is the creator. Is that correct? Yes, he is. And uh, I take it, Denny was not a racist asshole. Not in the least, but even the least, maybe not the least racist of people, but there were things you'd, could say and do in the 70s that you couldn't do <laughs> oh oh for sure and i i fully believe that if this this character had been created you know 40 decade or 40 years earlier it would have been much more problematic but uh, let's let's start at the very beginning sure. let's start off with some people who may be hearing this guy's name for the first time Roz Raish. I think people pronounce it both ways. We have certainly decided that it's going to be Raish. Why? How? Etc. For me, honestly, I went with Raish because that's the pronunciation from Batman the Animated Series, which is the first time I ever heard the name pronounced out loud. And so it's what I imprinted on. The more public knowledge from Batman Begins absolutely pronounces it Roz. In the CW TV shows, they actually pronounce it both ways. The members of the League of Assassins and those aligned with him pronounce it Raish, and those who oppose him tend to pronounce it Raz. So as you've said before, we are a League of Assassins podcast, and thus we pronounce it Raish. And I said that only because I remember hearing something from some panel at some point. And I thought that that was a, a pretty clever explanation. So I have no other justification aside from that. But uh, I, I think it's, it's clever or interesting rather, because as we've said before, the hardest fucking thing in comics is knowing how to pronounce stuff. And second to creator names, I think this is one of our one of our big mysteries in comics. Not as bad as Mixia Spitlick, but pretty high up there oh oh i would not even fucking try that one that's too many goddamn consonants let's dive right into our first story tonight that story is demon's quest 
from Batman Volume 1, numbers 232, 235, 240, and 242 to 244. The writer on these is Denny O'Neill, with pencils by Neil Adams in 232 and 243 to 244, and Irv Novik in 235, 240, and 242. Pencils are by Dick Giordano. No colorist was credited. Letters by John Costanza and edited by Julie Schwartz. Cover dates are June and September of 1971 and March and June through September of 1972. A globe-trotting adventure pits Batman against a new foe, the international criminal known as Rachel Ghoul and his lovely daughter Talia. Will Batman defeat the demon's head or join him? This is a loose connection of one and small multi-part stories that all sort of climax with the two-parter and 243-244. And as they tend to be collected together, I group them together as one story and went with the name Demon's Quest because that is the story that the adaptation of these from Batman the Animated Series used. The trade they're collected in is called Tales of the Demon, which also collects a few other early Rachel Ghoul stories after this. And one before it. Right, because the story before it, Talia actually appears before Raish does. And the first story is actually mostly a Talia story. The story we're starting here is the first full appearance of Raish al Ghul. Uh, But that first story does include Dr. Dark. Yes. Oh, all of those characters that surround Raish and their terrible, weird, funky names. I, I... Dark. Multiple R's. Multiple A's. Multiple A's, right. It's it's D-A-A-R-K, not D-A-R-R-K. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not dark. Dark. That's the pirate version. I will say that we haven't read too many, if any, villain origin stories for this year's show. We've read some early appearances. You know, we read uh, the first sort of modern two-face appearance, but we didn't read, you know, we didn't read his origin. We didn't read Joker's origin, but we'll get there. We'll get there. We're going to read all of them. Um, so I thought it was really interesting to see this character evolve, not just in this story, but in the other two we're going to talk about tonight. But I like how you can see the underpinnings of the modern character that Rache is going to be, even as early as these stories because you see the respect he has for batman like calling him the detective starts at the very beginning because they are for lack of a better word way to describe it they're allies here in these earliest stories maybe Raish is using batman to his own ends but you know they are they are standing side by side until you know that final chapter and i think one of the fascinating things here and something I never really maybe understood in this relationship, I, I think the normies out there would tell you, uh, you know, who does Batman sort of finger as his greatest villain? Oh, well, that would be Joker. No, if, if we could conjure Batman and sit him down and ask him, at least after reading these stories, like, who is the greatest threat you face? It's clear from reading these stories, it's Raish. Through all of these iterations, Batman says, I would do anything to stop Raish. I have to do everything to stop Raish. And that's clear even in these earlier stories. It's partially because Raish operates on a scale so much grander than the Joker normally does. 
the Joker is, with the exception of some modern weird, you know, versions where he is trying to take over entire cities and things. The Joker's a homicidal maniac who gets his jollies hurting people, sure, but he's not trying to exterminate the vast majority of humanity in one fell swoop. He might, if the opportunity presented itself, sure. For laughs. For laughs. But Raish is cold and calculating and has a plan. While the Joker is like a dog chasing a car. Except he absolutely isn't. The Joker has plans too, but the Joker's plans aren't as grandiose as Raish's are. Yeah, Joker's plans are more like, I'm going to, uh, I don't know, build a, a giant whoopee cushion in Gotham and, and fill it with Joker gas and just see what happens. Or... For those out there who are Patreon backers, you'll hopefully have listened to both our bonus episode and the content. And if you're not, you really won't get this reference. But from Batman the Audio Adventures, The Antidote. Shit, I was on that podcast and I still don't get that uh, that reference. Oh, the Joker's little plan for the Bomb Squad guy? Oh, 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 fuck. That was dark. God yep. damn it. That oh. or one of my all time. Have you read Gotham Central? I read the first arc, I believe. Okay, because there's a Joker arc called Soft Targets that we will do because Batman appears in that story at the very end in a small appearance. It is one of the most fiendish and sadistic Joker plots ever. It's, it's, it's an up there with the antidote. I, I don't even want to give you any hints because you, you get to the end and it's like, oh, that's fucked up. That is fucked up. But we don't get a full idea of the scope of what Raish's detailed plans are in this. But we get hints that Raish wants to sort of reset the earth. And that's beyond your standard bat villains plots. And I think that is part of what makes Raish so frightening to Bruce. That and the constant temptation of Talia. Raish's madness is much more restrained. It's it's cold, it's calculating, it's guided by logic, which I don't think you can say of all of the bat villains. Absolutely not. Raish is a villain who he's one of those villains where if you listen to him in just the right moment, it sounds like he's right. And that's what makes him that much more terrifying. The Joker never sounds like he's right. The Penguin never sounds like he's right. The Penguin's just a greedy motherfucker. The Riddler is an unctuous ass who thinks he's smarter than you. Harvey is a broken man. The only other bat rogue that sometimes thinks on this scale and can also come off as right sometimes is Ivy. Seems like they would be aligned in many ways. Any team ups there? Not as far as I know. Not as I can't remember any, but fun fact years and years and years ago, right around the time that shortly before Batman begins came out, buddy of mine at the comic shop I was working at asked me, you know, what would you do? 
if you were given the opportunity to write what I guess eventually became a concept that DC would use as Batman Earth One. But we said, you know, something like Marvel's Ultimate, where I would recraft the Batman mythos as if it were starting now, what would I do differently? And I absolutely linked Ivy's origin to Raish because of how similar they were. I sort of tied, even without having seen Batman Begins yet, I actually did some thought about tying some of the stuff with the League of Assassins and Bruce's training together, which hadn't been done before that. So I was like, oh, well, I was thinking right along the lines of Christopher Nolan. Good for me. <laughs> Each of these one, the one shot stories here, 232, 35 and 40 are just short one off Batman in some sort of adventure involving Rache. 32 is that first full appearance with Talia and Dick being kidnapped, quote unquote, and Bruce having to team up with Raish to find them. And from there, we get a couple of really very 70s sort of action spy thriller kind of things, a plague story and a murdered scientist story that by the end has some crazy sci-fi trappings to it. Then we get a three-parter, although the first part is much less connected than the other two that are basically Bruce realizing he has to focus on stopping Rachel Ghoul. That introduces a few characters that really don't get much use after this or any i'd have to reread the rest of those early race stories to see if they pop up again but aside from introducing race and to a lesser degree talia because we will eventually read that first talia story but i didn't group it in here this introduces one major and one minor element to the batman canon as well uh the minor one we'll hit first is the first appearance of dr moon a mad scientist who will pop up occasionally in other bat stories throughout the times. The major element added to the oh, bat. Oh, 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 can, can I guess? Can I guess? Can I guess? Please. Uh, is it? Is it matches? It is. Ah, matches Malone. Yep. First appearance of matches Malone, Bruce's criminal undercover identity that he swiped from a guy who tried to shoot him and the bullet ricocheted and killed him. And so now when Batman goes undercover, He's matches Malone, which was a great idea from Denny. It was a really good idea to have this one identity that Bruce will constantly go back to when he needs to go undercover. But I will say in, uh, in this, these issues here, it's confusing as fuck. Yeah, they keep doing this whole thing where sometimes Bruce is matches and he's got a Batman dummy and he's throwing his voice. Sometimes Bruce in the costume and Dick in a suit and mask being matches and it's really all over the place an inflatable suit yes an inflatable suit because at least they point out bruce is markedly larger in size than dick even a dick who's now off in college and even today anybody who draws dick grayson and bruce wayne looking close enough that people who have even a passing familiarity with batman could confuse dick in the costume with bruce doesn't realize how dissimilar they are in body type. 
Yeah, Nightwing should, should still be a gymnast. I mean, come on. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was really confusing to read some of those scenes, especially what is it? The beginning of I think it was probably two forty one or two forty two. Two forty three. Two forty two is the first time you see matches. I think you're talking about the beginning of two forty three, where Bruce is sparring with Lo Ling, and yes. matches is just sort of there. Yeah, yeah. And matches is given commentary, and I'm like, okay. I know that one of these guys is a dummy or one of these guys is a stand-in or a replacement. And then, of course, after the fight, we get to the two panels of, oh, thanks for popping in, Robin. See you after you get done with the semester at school. I mean, just, just classic like 70s camp and silliness. But it didn't detract from the overall, I think, seriousness of these issues. And I really loved the opening narration of most of these books. It's like just laid out the stakes of how serious all of these stories are, even as we've got body doubles and switches and maybe a disembodied brain or two, you know, it happens. And the Lazarus pit, which is a weird plot device. It works. It is a very cool device that is used well, but it's not a grounded device. It is high science fiction or fantasy. I mean, you don't have a real impression in this story whether or not it's magic or science, but you know it's something that literally raises the dead. Yeah, and Later authors will certainly get into kind of a midichlorians problem where you're trying to explain and you when you combine like, oh, it's chemicals and acids and special influences of the earth. And it's like, no, just just don't, man. Just don't let it let it be. It's a special pit in a special place. And there it is. The first and the last two issues are probably the most substantive. That first appearance with the ones drawn by Neil Adams, frankly, they're the most remarked upon because they're the ones that introduce Raish, that introduce the Lazarus Pit, and that have Bruce and Raish dueling and introducing what Grant Morrison addresses as the hairy-chested love god, Batman, (laughs) which is a great turn of phrase. And it is. I mean, it's Batman stripping down to just his mask and his trunks and tights and dueling race with swords in the desert that is a sequence where i tell you i don't necessarily always mind how wordy 70s bronze age comics can be but boy that sequence could have used a couple extra pages and not crowding it with word balloons that should have just let Adams go to town with this duel between Batman and Raish with swords. I'm still struck by how long it took comics to get to the point of let's tell stories with pictures. It's it's wild, right? All of these issues have Batman's internal narration, which we don't have anymore. To think that you could just have pictures. It's crazy. The earliest example that really jumps to mind for me of a sequence like that if you've ever read it is 
the uh, Chris Claremont and Frank Miller's Wolverine miniseries from 1982. There's an extended sword fight in there between Wolverine and his nemesis, Lord Shingen or Shingen. And it's silent. It's just the two of them. It's and it's Frank Miller in his daredevil era, like some of the height of his powers. And it's a gorgeous sequence and it's silent. And that's what I wish we could have gotten here for this bit. Just let Neil Adams go to town, but don't let Neil Adams write it because someday <laughs> will someday we will get to Batman Odyssey and it's Batman versus Rachel Ghoul. And we have competition for the bottom of the list for those. Uh, did, uh, did Adams finish Batman versus Rachel Ghoul? Yes, it finally came out. It was interrupted by the pandemic, but it eventually did come out. But oh my God, these are the weirdest and wordiest comics I have ever read in my entire life. I don't uh, know if they're worse than I, I I'm trying to remember if they get to the point of being offensive or if they're just painful because of how wordy they are. But yikes. We went almost 20 episodes with Batman and Superman versus vampires and werewolves at the bottom. I am confident that white knight is going to stick at the bottom for a good long time until and this is this is my guess white knight 2 yeah i I was gonna say white knight 2 i'm sure we'll run across i mean as i said those the neil adams written and drawn stuff from the modern era are gonna get there we might run across some other stuff but yeah those are well down towards the bottom of the lists and hey, we got uh, White Knight 3 to look forward to. Well, and then eventually, uh, we're going to do some trauma to you and, uh, and read Robin and Batman for the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> so we're, we're getting near the end on this just because of time. But it's interesting that Adams and Irv Novick are fairly different pencilers when it comes to style. But Dick Giordano inking them both makes it a really nice continuity between the two styles. It doesn't feel really discordant when you move from Novik to Adams. No, I mean, I thought there was a great deal of visual uh, continuity between all these books. But here's a random question for you. What did they do between these issues? Do you have any idea? There are a lot of just one-off stories i believe i'm gonna double check as we speak one of those stories half an evil that two-faced story is in the (laughs) middle here that's 234 ain't that something yeah uh i believe 239 is another story i want to do night of the reaper it feels like this was almost a sort of recurring sub 237 is night of the reaper excuse me a recurring subplot that would pop up for an issue and then go away it's how you could do comics back in the 70s not what you do today certainly no it's fascinating to see that 242 is not on infinite or comicsology so reading the rest of this on infinite and then reading 242 from an old trade how much those Adams books and the Novik books in this case have been recolored and tightened up versus how they looked originally. 
Oh yeah, I'm working from the um, Tales of the Demon trade, and yeah, it's it's clear that all of these have been retouched digitally. So yeah, I can only imagine how different it would be going back to those original books. Yeah, I mean, I was reading this from a trade from the late '80s, early '90s. So this was like on maybe not as cheap a paper as comic from the '70s were, but much cheaper paper than your high gloss comics now. And it's it's a real different experience. The only other thing I want to make sure we touch on here before we move on is Talia, because we haven't really talked about Talia. She's a really different character than we'll see her be later, but there are still the core bits of the character there. She doesn't have as much agency as we'll see her have later. She is much more Raish's sort of right-hand woman who does what her father tells her to and is sort of used as an inamorata for Batman and Raish sort of playing Bruce with her affections. But you still see the hardness because she's she's shooting guys. She's got no qualms. And uh, Batman is not exactly one to dissuade her from shooting guys. No. And I like that it's already obvious that she has her own angles because when she at one point shoots a guy with a dart that was supposed to be truth serum and it turns out it's amnesia drugs. Batman himself is like, yeah, I know her better than that. She's not that careless. This is Yeah, she's not going to fuck that up. I like that, as you said, with Raish at the beginning, while these aren't the fully formed version of these characters, they're well along the, the path to become those characters that we know. Do you have anything else you want to call out on this one, Will? Uh, I'd say Batman has a couple of weird character moments. I think he he calls a, a couple of guys uh, like Fatso or something like that. That was weird. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Batman is not quite the Batman we know. He's mostly the Batman we know, but not quite. Not quite. He's still got a touch of the 70s about him. Uh, as does anyone who likes disco. <laughs> yes. And with that, it's time to put Demon Quest on the big board we are currently at 87 stories on our Ooh. big list number one is in remains year one from batman volume one numbers 404 to 407 number 20 is no law and a new order the first arc of no man's land number 40 is going sane from legends of the dark knight numbers 65 to 68 Number 60 is Batman, Son of the Demon, graphic novel. Number 80 is The Last Batman Story, question mark, from Batman Volume 1, number 300. And down at the bottom is White Knight. This, I feel like this belongs pretty high. I would say it's going to be the highest Bronze Age thing we've read, which to my eye puts it above 32 well question mark the highest bronze age story we have is actually number eight that's joker's ah, five-way revenge ah, ah, it's yes. not quite up that high joker's five-way no. revenge is such a perfect little one shot and does so much to define or redefine the joker 
But I believe that the, yeah, I think the next Bronze Age story down is, yeah, 32, half an even. So this is, is, so that's still a pretty wide swath between 8 and 32. Uh, let's bracket it 20 and 32. I don't, I don't think it beats, uh, no man's land. No, I think if this had just been 232 and 242 to 244, it might, but those two sort of strange stories are by no means bad by any stretch of the imagination, but they're just sort of little distractions and side quests and little bonbons that don't really benefit the arc overall brains in a jar that kill themselves right um so i'm thinking though the low 20s because of just how fully formed Raish is he's i mean well not all the way there he's much closer to what the character will be than your first appearances of most of the classic rogues. And those that first story and those last two issues are really great stories. Yeah. Again, that really just highlight how Bruce sees Raish as the villain that he would go to the ends of the earth to stop. I think it's better than Bloodstorm at 26. Yes, I think it's probably better than Going Straight, the Batman Adventures Annual at 24. I don't know if it's better than Gothic at 21, that crazy Grant Morrison, Mr. Whisper story. And Identity Crisis is pretty solid. I think we're we're looking at above or below 23, Catwoman 32. Yes. While I really like that story, this story has so much weight to it for what it is. I think it beats that story. Works for me. All right. So that makes Demon's Quest our new number 23. Our next story is Birth of the Demon. This is the Batman Birth of the Demon original graphic novel. Written by Denny O'Neill, with art by Norm Brayfogel, letters by Ken Brusenak, and edited by Archie Goodwin. The cover date is December of 1992. For the first time, learn the true origin of Ra's al Ghul, as Batman races to stop Ra's from using a Lazarus pit. Boy, I wrote that and I did not realize how difficult it would be writing races to stop Ra's. (laughs) Writing it was easy, saying it was not. So... I'm going to start this out. I've got a a fondness for this book and a soft spot for it because of the circumstances in which I first purchased it. Tell us a story, brother Matt. So I started college and the comic shop I was shopping at at the time was not that far from where I went to college. I, I went to college about half an hour from where I was living, where my family was living. And the comic shop was pretty much halfway in between and right on the rail line. So for the first couple of months that I was at college, I kind of would go every Wednesday to take the train to and from to get my comics. But there was a comic shop in town where I was going to college. And 
I learned they put up flyers at the campus that Mondays and Tuesdays, you show your college ID, you got 20% off your purchase. Oh, those poor guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, only on graphic novels and toys, not on new comics or anything or back issues. And so when I found that flyer, I, I went down and I went into that shop. And that day I bought Batman the Cult, Batman Dark Joker the Wild, and Batman Son of the Demon. And that was my first trip to Dewey's Comic City, the comic shop that after another month or so from that point, I switched my pull to, and a year after that, started working at and worked there for 15 years. Many of my closest friends I met working at Dewey's, and it remains one of my you know, favorite places that I have ever been and worked. It was my home away from home for many years. So I will always have a soft spot for this being the book I bought the first time I went to Dewey's. Uh, who wrote the cult? Jim Starlin and Bernie Wrightson Art. Why did I think Brubaker for some reason? No, this was this was from the mid '80s. Brubaker was a kid. <laughs> Brain cramp. Yeah, this was yeah. in between that second origin of Jason Todd and Death in the Family, so that falls right in there. We uh, we got to get that uh, on a show sometime. Yeah, uh, it's another one that I've grouped in my religious Batman stories. That I think we got to talk to, to uh, Comics XF's Rob Secundus to come on to talk about religious, religion and Batman. Bobby Two Bucks. But now on to this story. So this is Rache's creator, Denny O'Neill, coming back and working with Norm Brayfogle, the seminal Batman artist of the 90s, to tell the origin of Rachel Gould. So go back to hundreds of years ago in an unnamed Middle Eastern area and to give this story. And I will say, I am glad that in no way did he try to use real people, real cultures for this story. Oh, thank God. Yeah. He, he learned, hopefully, from some of the stuff that we ran into in Shaman. I was pleased at how unproblematic this turned out to be. I was really worried going back into this that this would be a lot more stereotypically Middle East tribe stuff. And it's really not. You could have lifted this story and other than changing the costume, set it in feudal Europe or Eastern Europe, pretty much anywhere where there are people who are power hungry and it would have worked just as well. I thought as I was getting into this story and I, I came in so cold, right? I came in so cold. I opened the trade and you know, I, I see on our list, like birth of the demon, the birth of the demon trade is three books and it starts with one that we've already read. And I'm like, well, I fucked up this week. And then uh, and then I start scrolling around and oh, OK, it's it's the last book in here. Birth of the Demon. Got it. I had no idea what it was. I'm just just reading for the show and I get into it. and It's like, oh, this is a race origin story. Ooh, let's see how this is going to work. And, and I didn't my immediate thought was not necessarily yours. It's just that is this going to be boring? Is this going to have an actual story to tell? Is this going to be worthwhile? And I think at the end of the day, it, it was, right? 
if you would have told me, like, it's basically, okay, we're going to take the origin story of Darth Vader and we're going to give it just the whole movie. It's just going to be about his origin and nothing else. And it's not going to connect to anything else. I would have been worried. But uh, this, like I said, this, this worked out. It was an interesting look into the things that shaped him. And I think there were some good nuggets along the way. Like, where did he get the affinity for green? How is he basically destined to fight Batman for eternity? I, you know, I, I liked a lot of what we had. And some of the very darkest, most fucked up things in this book really appealed to me. And I'm a little bit ashamed to admit that, but I enjoyed it. And it serves as a good bridge in between the previous story and our last story as well, with a lot of the things that it establishes. I also like the bits where Raish doesn't travel alone through the centuries for a lot of time. There are characters that travel with him for parts of this story. And you see what changes him from a healer, the physician, as he's addressed at the beginning, to this magician and conqueror that he is later. And you feel sympathy for him. It would have been very easy to make him very villainous, but O'Neill has never portrayed Raish as all that villainous. And you see the people around him who were so much worse than he was. And this also sets up a thing that will follow not only in the, the next story, but in a lot of the intervening racial ghoul stories for years, the stuff about Batman trying to stop him from using the Lazarus pits to take over the locations to prevent Raish from being able to do that. He's not killing him. He's not even, you know, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to save you. He's just stopping Raish from cheating death. And that's something I can kind of accept within Bruce's morality. It's taking away his special advantage. It's making him equal to everyone else, even if he protests that you are murdering me. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. If getting shoved into a pit with, uh, with a bunch of angry people and uh, being locked in a cage with your dead wife at the same time, if that's not enough to break a guy and make him break bad, I don't know what is. That was so dark. Yeah, there's a lot of darkness in this story. You completely understand why Raish wants to kill this sultan and his son, because they are terrible people. They are awful people. And the son is power mad and the father looks the other way on all the terrible shit his son does because he does. And wow, it's it's dark. And when Raish gets his revenge, it's one of the most brutal scenes I can think of in comics. What he does to those two, it's like, that's EC Comics level of <laughs> sadism. But he kills the Sultan outright instead of uh, sending him off in the desert attached to his, the corpse of his son. Raish is not as far gone as he could be, yes. It also shows a good counterpoint between Bruce and Raish that at the beginning of the story, 
Raish addresses death as the great enemy. And let's be frank, that is what Batman thinks. That's why he doesn't take a life. Death is the thing that he's fighting as much as crime. And so Raish is or was at the beginning of his path in a similar place to Bruce. Only Raish eventually becomes selfish about it. It becomes just about him beating death, not beating death outright for humanity. Yeah, it's, it's an ego thing. And another thing that I liked about making Raish uh, a healer is that it only strengthens that paternal tie between Raish and Bruce being just strengthening that bond as a surrogate father and a would-be father-in-law. The framing sequence here with Raish having his age catching up with him and Bruce having fallen into a pond that had some sort of industrial waste in it and both of them basically dying and having a brutal fight by this Lazarus pit. There's a lot in this book about the symmetry between Bruce and Raish. And it's, I think it's a beautiful book. Is it ever? This is, this is fun to look at. I've said on the show many times that Bray Fogel is one of my definitive Batman artists, but to see him color himself in this sort of, it's not necessarily painted, but it has a painterly vibe to it is really, really pretty. It absolutely is. The facial expressions are so good. The colors are so vibrant. Don't always care for the lettering and the calligraphy, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm a grumpy old man when it comes to lettering. That is your pet peeve, and everyone who listens by this point knows it. It's also Fight me, letterers. Fight me. We also see the demon Bisu that is some religious figure in the local city that Raish is associated with the beginning. And it's cool that if you look at the first story, when Ubu shows up in this mask, pretending to be the head of this demon cult, the mask is just similar enough to that look of Bisu. And that Raish in the end removes the head of the statue, the literal demon's head, which ties his name and the origin together. And then, of course, only for that head to show up uh, once again in the end, which seemed a little contrived, question mark. But it was it was a good way to close out the book. It was. I I view that as symbolism. And you got to kind of run with the symbolism of that one. Again, the parallel between him and Bruce, they both suffer grievous losses. But their grief twists them in different ways, very specifically. Raish's grief for Sora, his wife, killed by the Sultan's son when he suffered the pit madness after he was raised from a Lazarus pit, makes him, well, I guess it's a combination of that grief and the fact that he was sadistically treated by the Sultan afterward. But that completely changes him and changes him from a healer into a marauder, while Bruce's grief makes him a hero in the end. And it's interesting how Raish can weaponize grief in that he knows Batman's grief specifically. We've seen this in other stories. When he abducted the bodies of Thomas and Martha 
And we'll see this in our next story. You know, he tempts Batman as a way with a way to talk to Thomas and Martha. And I think that binds the two characters together as well. This is a really strong graphic novel. It, it fits its pages well. It never really drags, which, as you said, with an origin of a character who at this point was about 20 years old, could have really felt pointless. But there is a point to everything that O'Neill does here. I do agree with something you said in the last story. The pseudo-magic science of how the Lazarus pits work is a bit unnecessary. I don't think it's ever quite explained, not in this story, and certainly not in the, the earlier stories, when does Lazarus pits as a finite resource, when does that get fleshed out? That's Rucka. I believe it's Rucka's earlier race stories and detective start making that a thing. Because I think it sets up making them the finite resource makes the stuff that O'Neill sets up here with Bruce walling off sites that Raish could use makes it all the more dangerous and pressing to Raish that you can only use a pit at a location a certain number of times before it just stops being effective. We'll get to that when we get to, I believe the story is called Evolution, which is Rucka's first race story in and around Detective 750. But I think that's where it's first mentioned. I mean, it's clear by Death and the Maidens, which is our next story, it will be very much cemented that the Lazarus pits in a certain location stop working after a time. And I'd wonder if, you know, you could let them recharge after a while and they would start working again. It's never really made clear. And it's something that I think we've sort of moved beyond at this point, because the Raish and the Lazarus pits haven't been, or Raish's resurrection in the Lazarus pits hasn't been as much of a story thread since the resurrection of Raish al Ghul crossover during the Morrison era. And we've got entirely new methods of bringing people back from the dead in comics. We don't need Lazarus pits anymore. True, but sometimes the old ways are the best ways. Is there anything else that you want to hit here? Uh, I don't think I've got anything else. Uh, that means it's time to put Batman, Birth of the Demon, on the big board. Okay. So, opening bid, I think this is better than Son of the Demon. Ah, uh, I was absolutely going to go there. And yeah, it's, it's no conquest or no, no question. Son of the Demon is just a fun action story that happens to involve Batman. Um, I don't think it's better than Demon Quest. So no. we've got we've got that tight bracket of 23 and 61. Okay, but let's what about how do you feel about this against Half an Evil, another O'Neill story? The art is really good and the story is compelling. I, I'd put it above half an evil. I would too. So that now gives us between 23 and 30. So that's a much tighter area. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit your soft spot here. Oh, no. How do you feel about this in relation to Thrill Killer? God, Thrill, Thrill Killer just keeps on slipping down. It, it, was, it was right there outside the top 10. Uh, now it's at 30. I, I'd say here the art is 
it's right there with Thrill Killer in terms of it being lush and different and vibrant, but the story is better, right? The story is better here. So I'd say above Thrill Killer, probably That's... above Little Gotham. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give you a spot where I'm looking. Okay. I'm thinking new number 27. I think better than Bloodstorm, not quite as good as another origin story, Cry for Blood, the Huntress, the, the new Huntress origin. I think that story, I'll always give Rucka a lot of credit on that one for all, I feel like all the research he did for the Cosa Nostra stuff. And I, I really like that story. And I think it's a more vital story, right? You don't, you don't really have to get Raish by reading this, right? This is not critical to your understanding of the character. It's neat. It's interesting, but I think you can understand when, understand him without reading this. Huntress, though, the modern interpretation, maybe not so much. I'm in agreement. So that would make this our new number 27, Birth of the Demon. And now on to our final story of the night, Death and the Maidens. This is Batman Death and the Maidens, numbers one to nine, and a backup story from Detective Comics, volume one, number 783. The writer is Greg Rucka. The pencils by Klaus Jansen. Inks also by Jansen. Colors by Steve Bucoletto. Letters by Clem Robbins. Edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. Cover dates are August of 2003 for The Prelude and Detective and October of 2003 to August of 2004 for the main series. A mysterious new foe, Nisa Rotko, is attempting to finally end Rachel Ghoul's life. Dying for what might be the last time, Raish makes Batman an offer. Give him access to a site where a Lazarus pit can be built, and Raish will give him access to a drug that will allow him to speak with the dead. This is a story that I read as it was coming out, as I tend to always say. And this is one that I went back trying to remember exactly how I felt about it. I remember the plot, but... Funnily enough, there's so much talk in this book about things that happened so long ago and you not necessarily remembering the feelings of them. Uh, A story I read 18 years ago, (laughs) I was not entirely sure how it would make me feel. And I'm still having mixed feelings on this story. There's a lot of good in it. But there's also some stuff that I read and that makes me a little uncomfortable. Oh, uh, some trigger warnings for self-harm and for brutalization of women in this section. So if that's stuff that is going to trigger you, I would probably skip this particular section of the story because it's stuff that we can't avoid talking about here this is certainly a uh, a long story yes it is long and frankly it feels a little bit too long if you read the back matter in the trade this was originally conceived as four 48 page prestige format books which would have made it about 40 pages shorter than what it finally comes out being. And that's not including the prelude. Might not have been a bad idea, guys. It's not a bad story. This is not bottom of the list bad. No, by no means. it's, it's it's a little too long. And 
I'm going to be right up front about this. While it does not demean the Holocaust, its use of the Holocaust is tricky. Yes. A bit problematic, especially because its use of Raish in the context of the Holocaust changes Raish from a noble villain into a completely irredeemable villain. Once you side with Nazis, there's really no coming back from that. Exactly. And it's not to say that Nyssa doesn't do things that make her a fairly irredeemable character as well. But even with what we know from Birth of the Demon, it really shows how far Raish has fallen by the 1940s if he is willing to side with the Nazis. Yeah, and uh, I guess that directly contradicts what we saw in Son of the Demon, where he's uh, fighting for the Allies and, you know, sending people off to Hiroshima. Right. Son of the Demon has always been questionably canonical, and that sort of seals the deal on where it lies in the canon, as in not. But yeah, I didn't think this this was Rucka's best work, and I don't really think it's Jansen's best work either. No, I think we've seen... We have seen and we will see better Rucka, and it's not as good as Gothic was from Jansen. And one of Rucka's specialties, I think, is writing strong female characters. And you can say what you want about Nyssa, but the way she totally psychologically just tears apart Talia, that's not a real good look. No, that whole sequence is really problematic especially when you realize the relationship between the two of them that nissa is brutally torturing her sister and by the way that's a swerve and i'm trying to figure out if it was a thing where it was originally Rucka was thinking of making Nyssa Raish's former lover and then somewhere on the way said no you know what it's better that she's his daughter Because you could read a lot of those early scenes both ways with him talking about her giving him an heir and things like that. But then suddenly it's like, nope, daughter. And it probably was written to be misleading versus it being a changed mind. But I don't see why you needed to do that swerve there. Yeah, it just comes off as weird and awkward and contradicts birth of the demon in probably its most eye-rolly moment that says oh yeah he met talia's mother at woodstock and i'm like come on that that was a bit of birth of the demon that we could skip that and we, we did skip yeah there's a reason why we didn't mention that because it, it was not particularly useful there are probably two main themes to this book One is the concept of the greater good, and one is grief and the way people deal with parental figures. Because this one, while the previous book dealt with parallels between Bruce and Raish, this one deals with parallels between Nyssa and Bruce. Because she is dealing with her father, who remains alive, while Bruce, even before he's given this alchemical formula that possibly maybe allows him to communicate with his parents is dealing with his feelings about his parents. And I will say the timeline here doesn't really work 
because saying that the Waynes died 25 years ago and Bruce was eight years old, that makes Bruce 33, which means he's only been Batman for, if you follow the year one timeline, eight years. There's a lot of Robins for eight years. <laughs> I've always personally said that, okay, if you make Bruce come back to Gotham at 21, the timeline works a lot better. But even then, 33 is not right here. Bruce should have been in his upper mid to early late 30s by this point. Hey, anything is better than the new 52 answer, which is all the Robins happened in five years. Yep, and Bruce is in his late 20s. Bruce's or mid 20s, not even late 20s. Bruce is like 25 or 26. No. Especially because that would make that makes him and Dick like two years apart. That doesn't make any sense. But the idea of the greater good and Raish embracing this idea of the greater good is brought up over and over again through this book. And Nissa viewing the greater good as well, that she believes that humanity is apathetic and is willing to commit horrible acts to snap humanity out of its apathy for the greater good. The greater good has always been Raish's thing. I mean, you wipe out two thirds of humanity or 90% of humanity to improve the planet for the greater good. And so seeing Raish having to deal with someone against him who is using that same rationale is interesting, especially a monster that Raish created himself. Because, I mean, Nyssa is, you can feel sympathy for Nyssa because what happened to her was terrible. But at the same time, what she does to Talia is again, an irredeemable act. And sending Misha, her Ubu, to assassinate Superman to shock the world out of its apathy is also an unrepentantly evil act. And so much of the Talia stuff feels like it happens off page, right? We don't get a sense of how many times does Nyssa kill Talia in her special Lazarus pit that isn't bounded with by the same limitations as the other ones, which is convenient for this story. I wonder if part of that is Rucka just being whatever number you imagine is going to be worse than a number that I give you. I mean, if he said 12 times, that's one thing, but in your own head, you're going to think of whatever the worst number you can think of is. How many times does it, uh, how many times do you have to kill a person to psychologically break them? Meanwhile, we have Bruce meeting the Waynes on some sort of astral plane or limbo and them basically shaming him that he has become Batman, not for them, but for him. And they would rather he did something else. There's a lot of stuff to unpack with those scenes. That story felt to me so disconnected from everything else going on. If I had to trim this book, I would definitely start there. You know, Martha just walking through Gotham and reminiscing about, oh, I remember used to go to the deli there, the the department store. And then Bruce is like, oh, that guy was murdered. Like, yeah, that's bad, I guess, but I don't, I don't see how it ties into the, the larger story you're trying to tell here. It's there to build the parallels and to let Bruce come out the other side as a Batman who is no longer Batman because of the grief 
that was spawned by the death of his parents, but him choosing to be Batman because that's who he is, which is Alfred's line, which is a, a great line. You are the Batman because it is who you are meant to be. Alfred remains the best. Uh, clearly. But I think you can still have all of that stuff with the story that they're telling in reality, the story that Bruce's memories of his parents and of his grief is not as fresh as it once was. And I think that's a, a much better story, a much stronger story than the astral plane stuff. Would you instead have just had done more of a mystery, a detective story with Bruce following clues, dealing with Ray, trying to investigate Nyssa, and learning their relationship early on and sort of considering parents and children while dealing with the, all the Nyssa and Talia and Raish stuff as it is, would that have worked better for you? I think so. And I think that would have worked better for Rucka too. Yeah, I wasn't sure how I would have fixed this, but that stuff, I personally want that to have been a delusion. I want that to be Bruce's own doubt coming through in the drug and not his parents. Mm, no, uh, I think the the less you have Batman interacting with Thomas or Martha, the better. Thomas Wayne has never done anything good in the main Batman universe. Not looking forward to this Flashpoint event, but whatever. They didn't ask me. Yeah, that is not a story that particularly needed to be revisited. And while we will eventually have to cover it, not anytime soon. It's going to be a long time before we get uh, any more Tom King on the old podcast, I believe. There's a couple. I mean, I might want to look at rooftops. that And date night. Yeah, and date yeah, night. yeah, yeah. But those are probably the only two stories that I'm looking forward to revisiting anytime soon. The beginning of this story, where we keep passing through Nissa and Raish's recent interactions, say a month ago, a year ago, two years ago, a year and a half ago, it's, it's not consistently moving in one temporal direction. 35 minutes ago. Right. It throws me. Oh, yeah. And it's like, why couldn't you have told, you know, done the recent stuff in chronological order and then done all of the old time flashbacks later? That was fine because that was so removed from what's going on now. But the fact that that was bouncing around so much probably is more an issue of reading it in trade in one sitting. If I had read that in single issues, it probably wouldn't have bugged me because the flashbacks were themed to what was going on in that particular issue. But reading it in one sitting, it threw me. Uh, absolutely, as it did me. Yeah, the, the early bits just weren't, weren't as easy as a read as I would like, I think, because of that confusion, that jumping around so much. I think the stuff we've said has been pretty down on this book. I don't want to give the impression that it's a bad comic because it's not. There's a lot of cool stuff to it. This is an interesting character. Nissa and Raish's duels through the centuries are interesting. 
I will always like Rucka's Batman and Rucka's Rage, except for the Nazi thing. That's a, a problem. And I think the core of this, I like some of Bruce's first narration about that he, I don't remember my mother's face. That idea, the idea that that grief, that the freshness of the death of the Waynes has faded is a really strong story point. And as you have pointed out, Martha herself says, these weren't my good pearls because they broke. Yes. I think this story would also be better remembered if anyone did anything with Nyssa again. (laughs) Nyssa shows up two more times. Once in an arc of Batgirl right before Infinite Crisis, and then in the first issue of the post-Infinite Crisis Robin series, where she is murdered by Cassandra Kane, And that is the last we see of Nisarotka. Interesting choices there. That was when Cassandra broke bad, thanks to Deathstroke, and tried to take over the League of Assassins. Nissa is blown up in a car bomb. End of character. They spent all this time building up and making this multifaceted character, and then she dies like that in one of the worst Cassandra Kane stories of all time. Thank you, DC Editorial, for wanting to make her a villain. Did not work. Did not work. We'll blame Johns for that. Didio. I blame Didio. We, we also have an instance of Superman wearing Batman's costume, which is something that we have seen and will see again in various stories, including something we'll be writing about in tomorrow's column that y'all will have read weeks ago at the time that we are recording versus the time you are listening, because we record well before these come out. Because who knows what might happen? And since Matt has to do all the hard work, you don't want to have to make the poor man edit on deadline. That'd be terrible. I have plenty of time to do all that editing. And also, this is all the next time we get a major Talia story, other than her as a supporting character in some of the run-up to Infinite Crisis and in that one Nyssa story in Batgirl, is Son of the Demon. Not Son of the Demon, sorry. Batman and Son. So that whole, I will call you beloved no more thing, that doesn't last too long. That lasts about a year. And you also have to think... Due to the that retcon, she has Damien at this point. She has been brainwashed by Nyssa, yet still has Batman's son and is training him. So there are, are some continuity issues with how all of this works. But retcons are retcons, and continuity is continuity. And you tell a story, and it works or it doesn't on its own merit. And that's probably the best way to deal with superhero comics. And I think we can just pretend that Death and the Maidens takes place in the same universe as Son of the Demon. Yeah, especially since it completely disappears and is never mentioned again less than a year after it ends, or approximately a year after it ends. Uh, Is there anything else, Will? I don't think so, so that means it's time to put Batman, Death and the Maidens on the big board. We've got to stop doing these in descending order of where we want them on the list, because it seems like we're lazy. But in all fairness, you know, White Knight was at the bottom and the stories after White Knight were better. So it's not too long ago that we did an episode where that wasn't the case. I don't think as an opening bid, I don't think this goes above Clown at Midnight at 52. 
No, I think Clown at Midnight, while a weird experiment, it is more successful than this. I think I, and I mean, listen, you know, it's my soft spot, but I think Blades is better. Blades is more compact. Blades tells a stronger story than just those three issues. Yep. Next, though, we have Arkham Asylum Living Hell, which has a really good first three issues and a really good last, like, five pages. And issues... That is a fair summary. Four, five, and much of six might even be, like, the first three and a half issues. I'm trying to remember which is the Aaron Cash issue. Because that one starts out real strong, and then it falls apart at the very end. And I think that might be four. So I think, yeah. So it's a good three and a half issues and a good last few pages. And then the balance of four, all of five, and most of six is kind of meh. Yep. I but think that last page, that last page is a good one. It is. The, so I guess that puts these in similar places because it's another book that has some really good points and some really iffy problematic stuff in it. Just trying to figure out if the good in this outweighs the good in Living Hell. Right below that is Riddler in the Dark, which is that Legend of the Dark Knight story from, from so. Charles Soule. Which is a fine story, but there's much more meat on this. Yeah, and the, the art wasn't spectacular in, uh, in that one. Ultimately forgettable. It's, it's, it's an interesting artifact of history, Charles Soule writing Batman when he was an up-and-coming creator. But that's about it. I'm leaning towards putting this above living hell. The problematic stuff here is problematic because Ruka was taking a big swing on something and it hits kind of uncomfortably the stuff in living hell with magpie trading sex for Mm. shiny things and the way some of the female characters are written there yeah reminding me the bad parts of living hell yeah i think while we said there is some issues with how talia is presented Rook is still trying to do something and say something with that mm-hmm. versus Slot, who's just, this is also a book that has dropped the soap jokes. Yes. Death in the Maidens does not go there. So I believe no. this is our new number 54. I 50- like that. See, see yep. folks, Matt remembers things. Matt remembers things. Things pass through my brain like water through a colander i just it comes in and it goes out and i just live my life but matt matt remembers that remembers the shitty parts of the books we read pepperidge bombs remembers (laughs) we just hit 90 stories on this list we are well on our way to hitting triple digits let me see let me do the math there uh so 90 stories Three stories an episode. That's 30 weeks. Yeah. 30 shows. Look at Look that. At that. We're doing good. We are doing good. So that is it for this week. Next week, to tie in with the death of the Justice League, for real and true this time, DC is born. You know, this is going to be the real death of Batman. We're going to be looking at three other stories about the death of the Dark Knight. 
we'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grove, June is Dead, Long Live June, Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum, Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, and Sam Hopper for their support. The real heroes, as always. You can follow this podcast on Twitter, at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ComicsXF.com. And you can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm out of here. Good night, Miami. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.